2: <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. Oops. I also don't know why I just knocked my headphones off here. I'm going to try to sound more professional from now on. Starting now, I'm going to be more professional. So just to sort of put this in perspective, Biden is like way ahead on electoral votes. And he's way ahead on p- the popular vote. In fact, I mean, I think right now he's, he's roughly about 4 million ahead on the popular vote. In, Nate Silver, who I know can be wrong about things, but he's probably not too wrong when he projects out. He's using, uh, I think, uh, Edison's Edison Research's uh, estimates here. Biden could win the popular vote by almost 7 million votes. I think it's just for sure he'll win it by more than 5 million votes. So let's go way down and say he's going to win it by 5 million votes. And, you know, we're all kind of, oh, I'm just, it's really just so close. <laughs> I mean, if this were, a, in my life anyway, if I had been reading about another country where the chief executive was losing an election by five million votes and was contesting it and doing everything in his power to delegitimize the votes and insisting that he had won the election, I would think, what a dictatorship what a bunch of fascist dictators they are over there of course it's here and I know I know we don't decide things by the popular vote believe me this is not my first rodeo uh on the other hand it just it just seems ludicrously out of balance right now and and like so many things we're you know for some reason or other we have to act as though it's like a much closer thing uh, and who knows maybe it is i've lost all perspective so what we're going to do today until we get preempted which could happen like now uh, but we'll probably get at least 5 minutes warning um, but uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to uh, take your phone calls at 888-720-9677 they should probably be about the election I- i'm going to i'm going to say they should almost <laughs> i'm going to say they should almost definitely be about the election. Uh, but I don't know, get creative, surprise me. Um, that's always a risk. So um, we're gonna do that, 888-720-9677. But just in case nobody calls, and also because I would like to hear his thoughts, because I know him to be a deep thinker uh, about uh, elections and, and someone who has worked uh, for a president in the White House, that kind of thing, and uh, two tri- two-time Democratic nominee. I just wanna see one more thing before I introduce him. So you know why why we're going we look at this huge overwhelming margin you know and we go oh geez it's so close one reason we're doing that is it's imagine that there are two sword fighters and they're having a sword fight in a room full of 15th century chinese porcelain in glass cases and one of the sword fighters is trying really hard not to break anything and the other sword fighter doesn't mind breaking everything. And the only thing that the first sword fighter can do to, to, you know, correct that disadvantage he has is occasionally turn to the museum staff and say, I'm really determined not to break any really valuable pot of porcelain here. I'm going to work real, really hard on it. And meanwhile, the, the other guy is just slashing at him like a maniac. That's one of the reasons that we're so nervous. Anyway, joining us now is Bill Curry, White House counselor to the to President Bill Clinton, two-time Democratic nominee for governor of Connecticut, uh, columnist and uh, op-ed writer for many, many publications, 2 many really to be named right now uh and a frequent guest on these airwaves so bill curry welcome back to these airwaves
1: uh great to be with you thank you
2: so just you know i mean you just heard <clears throat> my screechy little snapshot of this particular moment what's your what's your snapshot what do you think we are right now at one o'clock on thursday
1: well i'm um i'm optimistic uh but in the last two days i've, I've been reminded of the difference between optimism and confidence. Mm. Um, it's an anxious optimism is probably the best way of putting it. I agree with everything you said about the popular vote, you know, and we just went through this in 2018, every person on television, including me said that there wasn't a blue wave around 10 or 11 at night. And that the Democrats were going to make it most modest gains in the house. And that took three days for the largest democratic wave in house election ever. To become clear, uh, the same thing happened in a way in the Hillary election two years before that, and that in that she increased her margin about 50 percent over the uh, the days after. That should be even bigger now uh, because there's so many mail-in votes and the mail-in votes are also Democratic. And so uh, so Biden's margin is likely to increase by even more. And just last to point one thing out, only two thirds of the California vote is in. hmm. Uh, right. and, and so that means there's another, uh, uh, five to 6 million California votes. He'll get to 5 million just in California, plus whatever the other 49 states can chip in. So right. we're in better shape in that way. And also this will be the third election after 2000, 2016. And now once again, in which everyone says the polls are broken and we have to go fix the polls, you know, in, in polling. First of all, it's not a crisis. It wouldn't be a crisis if we stopped polling for good. So the polls being inaccurate is not a crisis worth fixing. And secondly, the polls in 2000, the polls in 2016, were actually correct. There were a handful of of outliers in in individual states, but even the state-level polls are pretty good. And each time what happens is we miss something important. Uh, And the biggest thing we keep missing is voter suppression. Uh, And it changes its chameleon-like face from from cycle to cycle, Uh, but it's out there. The second thing we miss is that uh, to a degree no one anticipated uh, Trump has brought um, uh, some very right-wing voting, uh, 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 high school educated, uh, mostly um, uh, uh, white voters out into the democracy uh, uh, who had never never participated his ups, you know, his uptick there was every bit as big as ours Maybe bigger Um, so, you know all, when all that's done. Yeah, we the polls said we would we would win by a lot And when all the votes are counted, I expect we will certainly within the margin of error The question is what of them, you know, you can look at that you can think about all this I just, in, in terms of what d- Biden and the democrats did right or wrong? You know and just there are lots of things one I'm struck by how little we learned from 2016 in the media and in the democratic party um, and Among those in the democratic party, we still believe more in money than field even though all the data tells us to reverse that Uh, I know there was a danger in the covid virus and masking but it wasn't much of a danger I was deeply worried as soon as I realized that we weren't doing that kind of face-to-face organizing, even if socially distanced and masked from door to door and out in public. It's the the bread and butter of the Democratic Party. It is the essence of how we do voter registration. It is the best explanation for how we got out-hustled by a lot in voter registration in so many key states by Republicans. Uh, And it's the essence of voter turnout for us. Uh, uh, People going door to door and yanking them out of their homes. So that was, you know, that was a mistake. The second thing is, it turns out, you know, the reason they call it a campaign is that you have to campaign. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, uh, putting Biden in seclusion for so much of it was such a big mistake. I actually said, I don't know if I said it on WMPR, but I, I said it in a number of different places that I, I wished, inappropriate for a radio show, I wish Biden had a radio show every day. He, he could have just stayed, he could have gone actually into his basement where he, never actually was i don't think but and done a radio show a a two-hour call-in show every day it would have been kind of revolutionary and don't screen all the callers let the country have this opportunity to have an ongoing dialogue turn this into an advantage but part of the reason they were keeping biden under wraps is that they didn't trust him on gaffes um you know he had to be socially distanced he's 78 years old if he gets COVID, he could be dead in 36 hours there was a good reason for a lot of what they did, but they also had to find an alternative and they, and they didn't bother. I think, sort also, of, you know, the subtext,
2: ahead. the subtext of what you're saying, though, you know, I think it's a really good idea. But I think the subtext of what you're saying is and any idiot can host a call in talk radio show. Like that's right in there with what you're well, saying. Well, we
1: all draw from our personal experience, <laughs> you know, and uh, there's really there's no getting around that. <laughs> but, all right, uh, let's go
2: to let's quickly go to John in West Hartford. He's got a call, and it's the kind of call that uh, Bill Curry could probably answer. <laughs> all right, here we go, John.
3: and um, call. Uh, Bill, how's it going? Um, very well. How are you? Maybe three. Um, considering Trump's behavior, how is it that the election's so close? It's one, and the second is. What are those of us on the left, supposed, of, of the Democrats, supposed to do now? I have to explain to one of uh, the Biden uh, functionaries that I'm an anarchist. So I'm voting for him because the country's in trouble. But the Biden-Harris uh, campaign definitely is not uh, on my side of most things. And the last is, uh, have, it, have either you guys read uh, the article about Chomsky in The New Yorker? His, no, his I, I
2: have not. Chomsky? I, I will read it, though. Um, let me just back up and say to Bill, in answering John's question, just forget the anarchist part for a second, because, you know, typically, you know, mainstream politics will inevitably disappoint your anarchists. But um, yeah. but but like just say, let's pretend that John was a sort of Sanders progressive instead and, and then answer that question sort of, you know, what is there going to be for them, uh, assuming
1: uh, Biden is president? Um uh, what will there be for progressives? Um, uh, or uh, I hear two questions. One, which is, how do we change how we approach all this stuff? Mm. And it just makes me want to put out one other que- uh, issue about our behavior. In 2016, uh, I ch- i started challenging people almost immediately, and still do to this day—to tell me what Hillary's platform was, what she ran on, what they think people heard her say. And you know, your your listeners can uh, can try this out now. It's really hard. You know take your time, but you may not be able to to remember in a real way Whereas everybody can you know, you ask about trump and it's immigration and the wall and the trade and uh, you know demeaning and deploring everybody who disagreed with him But but we knew we as crude and unwelcome as they were to us We knew what he was running on and that was another failure here Uh, we have to put a a a blueprint on the table that people understand we easily could in florida a uh, a referendum on raising the uh, minimum wage to fifteen dollars passed with sixty percent. Uh, uh, Biden got less than fifty. If he would just spent the campaign telling people that he was for raising the minimum wage and Trump wasn't, he might have won. <laughs> uh, but there are three or four things that like that. And and the the, the, the second thing though is that, and, and f- first of all that the the, the Democratic Party establishment has to uh, uh divorce its big donors and fire its pollsters and recognize that it has policy issues to work out most of those i've said before and i've been writing about this for, last, for some time but uh, but most of those are are progressive most of the positions there is a hidden consensus within this seemingly conflict-ridden country and most of it is progressive people want a living wage They want universal health care. They want to save Roe v. Wade. They want common sense gun control, all by bigger margins than I've ever seen for reforms at the time of their enactment, literally. And and I looked it up. And and so there's this great consensus. At the same time, uh, there are a couple of things that we have to do very, very differently. And one is to realize that there are certain uh, conservative uh, uh, concerns that we have to answer. And it's not that we have to uh, compromise with the military-industrial complex or the fossil fuel industry or the health insurance industry, but we sure have to compromise with the voters. It's a majoritarian system. And they always have uh, three basic policy questions. One is, how much does that cost? (laughs) And when the Democratic presidential candidates spend the entire primary season in a fiscal bidding war, uh, voters are unnerved. Even before Trump opens his yap, and the second thing is, how does that really work? You know, do you know? Do you know how to make that thing work? You uh, know, how unwieldy would this bureaucracy be? Uh, and, and you know, they—they're worried they're going to get a raw deal because they're getting one now. And then the third question is, will you keep me safe? And every candidate, the most progressive candidate who might be listening, who's ever gone door knocking knows that you have to answer those questions so we have to make our our fundamental bernie warren populist argument clearer and stronger but at the same time we have to answer the legitimate questions of voters who are not bigots who are a little conservative who may be a little underinformed in some cases but uh, but, but whom we have to respect um uh, we can stop there but la- lastly if we, if we if we have time to get to it there's a question here about how we handle uh, issues of race and social change and morality and suffice it to say that we teach those things by example not by lecturing and uh and and that above all the people whom we purport to be teaching we must treat with dignity and respect and i do believe you know if if that's hard to do the thing I've heard most after 2016 and in the last two days is friends of mine deploring the voters themselves. Well, if the voters are the problem, we're really screwed uh, because that's something that's very hard to change. And you, the only way you make change is by taking responsibility for the things you can change, for the things that, that we ourselves do. And Yeah, uh, I, I agree. I mean, and, I've and read so we some. Have, and so we have to really think, we can get more specific, but we have to really think about how we approach those issues. last thing I' was going to say is above all, we can't approach them in a vacuum. you know So if you have to think of the white working class as characters in a Bruce Springsteen song in order to feel a little more empathy for them, uh, you know maybe, maybe that's the way to do it. But we have to be trying to get everybody on the same bus. The biggest reforms, the most important reforms, always embrace everyone: living wage, universal health care child care, uh, uh, affordable college, they bring everybody and they do the most for people of color. They do the most for the poor, but everybody gets to be a stakeholder. I do think that we, we haven't handled that well.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, I have a lot to say about that, although I mostly agree with it. In fact, you and I have had the experience of being at Springsteen concerts where there are a lot of people who are probably going to vote for Trump in this, who probably did vote for Trump in this election. And they're always really surprised that Springsteen's politics are completely different from theirs. The, the, uh,
1: and, no, they, they are. Yeah. I was at, weren't we at the, the Peter Wolf concert in Hartford? No, I didn't go to that one. I didn't go to that one. Oh, you mean, you mean that? I thought, well, anyway, I was there. I just, if I'm at a concert, I picture you there, you know? Yeah. Uh, but... Um, uh, I, I, so I got to be backstage with Peter afterward because I, I know him through our, my, our mutual friend Anthony Brooks. And, uh, and he asked me, so he takes me aside, he goes, Do you think my audience, uh, do you, how many people in my audience do you think voted for Trump? And he was really concerned. Um, and uh, uh, this is Peter Wolf from the Jay Giles Band for Billboard. I mean, it, you know, it was a great night of rock and roll. And I told him, "Well for sh- I don't know how many, but for sure a majority. Mm. And I felt so bad because he almost passed out. <laughs> 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 you know it's like we had to revive him with like a smelling salts. But yeah, and I have relatives who voted for Trump, and I love them. And uh, you know, I realized that forgiveness is hard and inclusion is hard, but we have to treat them the way they want everyone that we want them to treat everyone else. We have to do that. There's no other way to make that change. And, uh, and that's how the greatest, you know, from, uh, if you think about uh, uh, Martin Luther King, his letter from the Birmingham jail, if you think about uh, Gandhi, uh, Nelson Mandela, uh, 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 Václav Havel, all the 20th century figures whom I admire so deeply, uh, you never heard one of them say a negative word about their opponents, ever. And their opponents were their jailers. Mm-hmm. Okay. And still, people knew exactly what they wanted. That didn't make them weak, that made them stronger. Um, read the understanding in, in King's words in the Birmingham letter. People often miss that, even who know the letter. If you don't know the letter, look it up. It's really worth your time.
2: All right. But, so, as we go along, we have to me, learn about
1: how we talk to people about sensitive issues. We, uh,
2: I just want to give out the phone number if people want to call in. It's uh, 888. That's 888-720-9677. If that's hard to remember, it's eight 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 seven two 720 wnpr So, Bill Curry, while I have you here, I want to ask you about kind of a separate question, which is, I mean, one of the reasons we, we feel as though it is close. Well, I mean, in some ways it is because it is close in certain ways, and there are these uncanny things. Uh, uh, Mr. McPants, uh, one of our producers, has been doing some uh, number crunching, uh, for example, Uh, He says for Biden to overtake Trump in Georgia, if there really are 50,400 ballots left to count, Biden needs to win those ballots by at least 63.5 percent to 36.5 percent. The latest batch of Georgia ballots that did come back had Biden winning 63 percent and Trump with 36 percent. So, I mean, it really is like uncannily close in certain ways and nail bitey and not in other ways. But one of the reasons that it makes us bite our nails anyway is because Trump is going to test every norm in every institution that undergird this process. Uh, and there are a million different questions about that, including how many of his fellow Republicans are not going to join him in this. It does seem like a lot of people uh, are walking away or backing away from from Trump, uh, a lot of Republicans. But Bill, I think the other question and one that I'd love to hear your take on is, you know, how strong are these norms? Nobody really knows. How strong are these institutions? To what degree can they withstand the onslaught that they're about to get, especially given the fact that Trump has uh, appointed an awful lot of judges in the last four years? So what are your sort of either suspicions, worries, assessments of all that?
1: Well, first of all, if there's been uh, among the, I was about to say if there's been a single lesson, but clearly there've been so many of the last four years. But one of them is, um, uh, uh, that we should, first of all, the word norms should be excised from the progressive vocabulary. I've I, I just listened to so many people say that Trump violates norms. That's why they elected him. Even our people want people to violate norms. A lot of the norms really suck. And so violating norms in itself tells you nothing. And it even makes people sympathetic to the person you're talking about. But a lot now. Having said that, a lot of them, particularly the ones about how the government works, the wall between the Justice Department and the White House, whether you ever use White House power to threaten, to lock up, or 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 economically harass your opponents, um, uh, all of those norms. There are so many of the, them. The norms that used to exist in 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 the Congress. Uh, you know, when I when I worked for Clinton, Clinton never got fifty percent of the vote um and and uh he, he won with the plurality each time and it affected how he appointed judges and so we appointed judges a majority of the judges that we appointed were former prosecutors which is not a barrel out of which you get a lot of trotskyites and we and clinton wanted to know that they were democratic leaning but they were fundamentally centrists. we've had two presidents whom i believe were illegitimately elected uh george w bush and most of all donald trump but in both cases illegitimately elected with a, minor- it was both a minority and illegitimate and both, especially Trump, packed the courts with people who are not just ideologues, but apparatchiks. I hate to say it out loud. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm a lawyer. I spent my life loving the law and I went to, you know, and, uh, and the fact of the matter is I don't trust the federal judiciary today to give many people a fair shake on a lot of issues. I don't trust it on what's happening right now. If you do trust it, it's a mistake. Go read Bush v. Gore uh, and then realize it's only gotten worse since then. And so okay. there is there are huge issues here. And, the, and one of the things we've learned is that all the things that we counted on. Uh, uh, how do we end up here without without a without a filibuster uh, on the Supreme Court? Uh, the Republicans always say it was Harry Reid's fault. But the fact of the matter is they use the filibuster to stop Obama's appointments on judges. More than it had been used in almost the entire history before it, there was no choice but to change. We have to look at all these now, and realize that that if you're counting on decency, if you're counting on protocols, if you're counting on traditions, informal uh, 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 arrangements, you can't. You absolutely can't. And so one of the things that Biden wins is to go through and real and, and just ask where where all of these norms were violated within the government. Um, uh, what can we put into law? What can we establish by executive order? What needs a statute? They need to fight for it.
2: All right, we've been talking to Bill Curry, White House, a counselor to Bill Clinton and a two-time Democratic nominee for governor of Connecticut, an opinion writer for many places. I just wanted to say, uh, apropos of the courts, that we just got another bullet in the Trump campaign has lost a lawsuit seeking to halt vote counting in Michigan on an oral order from a state court judge. I know earlier today, I think it was earlier today, in Chatham County, Georgia, they also lost. I mean, they're going to have so many lawsuits. This is part of their strategy. You just have so many lawsuits, they could probably sneak Plessy Ferguson in in There, you know, and we just wouldn't even yeah. notice. <laughs> we wouldn't uh, notice. There's so, too uh, many to read. Yeah, what and, was
1: that and, one? and by the way, Trump and Bush don't; those appointees do not amount to a majority of the federal judiciary. Right. Number mm-hmm. one, right. but they're a huge minority. And the biggest problems are in the New York and Washington appeals court, and of course, in the Supreme Court. Yes. All right. So we take a break they've here. They've been packing the courts for four years. Trump has this. The one thing Trump's a genius is a genius at is accusing everybody else of doing what he's doing. You know, uh, you know, his son is testifying uh, before, uh, you know, a sworn testimony before an attorney general on on on, uh, on, uh, on crimes in New York. His daughter's working in the White House and getting handouts from the Chinese government. And he gets the whole country talking about Hunter Biden for a year. It's amazing. It's amazing how it works. Well, not, uh, not the whole country.
2: Anyway, we've got to take a quick break here. We've been talking to Bill Curry. We'll take a break. Our number, if you want to get on the air, triple eight seven two zero nine six seven seven, eight 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 seven two zero WNPR. We'll be back.
4: Well, I went to the doctor. I said I'm feeling kind of rough. Let me break it to you, son.
1: You're sh-t up. I said, my sh-t up. Well, I don't see how.
3: He said the sh-t that used to work.
2: And we are back. This is Colin McEnroe. Well, we're going to keep giving you updates on stuff. Uh, Betsy Kaplan is producing the show, but Jonathan McPants, our other producer, is like running his own little boiler room there and giving us updates. And so the more I give you updates, the less incentive there is to pre- <laughs> to preempt the show. That's my theory anyway. It's like how we're going to try to stay on the air here. Uh, all right. We uh, do have people who have called in. At 888-720-9677. 888-720-WNPR. If you're into the whole alpha alpha numeric thing dude uh, here's jack in montauk hi jack
4: hey guys how are you thanks for having me on
2: glad to have you on
4: great so i just wanted to comment that i really think that the only reason that anybody believes what trump ran on is because he's been throwing it up all over us for the last 4 years and furthermore i think that maybe we have to move back or past the idea of really taking a kumbaya kind of approach to people on the other side of the aisle, meaning people that have displayed clearly they're, they're complicit with the things that this person has done. And there's clearly cognitive dissonance. And, you know, maybe having harder conversations is the way to do it. And, you know, citing some of these people that we've all studied and admired throughout history that have taken the let's call it kumbaya way were completely different, I think situations and what we find ourselves with now. And that's it.
2: Well, you know, Jack, just we could just stay this for a second. Yeah, I think there are two legitimate schools of thought about this, and they may not be reconcilable. and Maybe they are. You know, I talk to people who served in Congress for a long time, who've been around Congress for a long time, and they say, you know, really, people used to, from opposite parties, go out to dinner. You know, actually, when Al Franken was in, uh, was a new senator, he uh, and another Democratic senator and two Republican senators and their spouses made a point of going out to dinner on a regular basis. The the eight of them, you know, and there's something, and you know, I, just there were more committees of correspondence. There was just this idea that you know you had to have some kind of you know consensus about certain things. And, and and I get what you're saying, too, which is at a certain point, the amount of, of collaboration that's gone on that, you know, so many of them seem so willing to do, even people like Ted Cruz, you know, who Trump made fun of his wife's appearance and then tried to implicate his father in the JFK assassination. And that wasn't enough to get him to stop colluding or collaborating anyway with Donald Trump. Rubio, you could say the same thing about Trump made every effort to humiliate him. Uh, Rubio is like cheering on the the caravan trying to, you know, collide with the Biden bus. Uh, and, and And we could go on and on about that. And so you're absolutely right, you know, to what at what point do you say these people are beyond redemption because of what they've stood up for or stood still for? On the other hand to have to have a political process that's so permanently broken or broken until there's a almost 100% turnover of its congressional participants seems you know i mean there's something very depressing about that and and i'm not sure that i can go as far as you're going for that reason but i don't know i'd love to hear you respond
4: yeah, just to qualify that. Right. So so we're going through this upheaval where we we're not going to get past our racial issues until we accept and acknowledge that we had racial racial issues and, and specifically um, slavery. Right. I think it's the same situation here. We're not going to get past this point until some, not all, but some people need to recognize that they went off the cliff. This is nuts. What they've just done for the last four years by condoning, supporting, looking the other way, or or just actively rah-rahing this madman. We've got to come to terms with the fact that, hey, you're not wrong. All right. Let's Mm -hmm. acknowledge that. Let's move on because there is no Republican Party right now. It's a Trump Party. And uh, that has to be acknowledged.
2: Yeah. One place that I will agree with you, I, I don't know how far I'm willing to carry this, Jack, but. Uh, and if Bill Curry were here, I'm pretty sure I can say with confidence that he would say the same thing, too. That significant laws were breaking, broken during the George W. Bush administration. Significant crimes were committed that probably should have been addressed and redressed at the start of the Obama administration. But Obama, being the guy he is, being the sort of no drama guy who kind of favors, uh, you know, given a choice between being high functioning and seeking some more extreme form of justice, he will always choose the high functioning option. And that was probably a mistake not to sort of get at some of the things that were done that were, you know, hideous violations of the Constitution. Um, And and probably the same is true here, and the same thing is going to happen, that there are people within the Trump administration, starting with Trump, who should be brought to justice for actual crimes that they've committed, violations of their oath. I would, at this point, put Bill Barr in that situation, in that bucket as well. Um, But but I also think Biden is temperamentally unlikely to do that. Uh, All right, so... Um, I've got time for one or two calls. Then we'll go to a break. Then we'll take more calls. That's the plan. We like to get lady persons on the air, uh, because otherwise, it's a bunch of guys talking. I mean, I guess that's pretty obvious, right? If you anyway. So here's uh Anne from East Lime. We also have Yara, uh, which I feel like is the name of somebody in Game of Thrones, but also maybe here as well. Uh, uh Anne, you're on the air. Hi. Hi.
0: This is very exciting. Okay. I've never called into your show before, but. Um, I just drove back from Hartford and was listening to you, and it really struck a chord. Um, I worked in the public relations field for a long time, and we, I worked on some campaigns. And the thing that I realized was that we create that candidate. And for the this candidate to say some of the outrageous things that he said about his, his opponent makes me how anyone can evaluate who to vote for anymore where where do we where do we say okay you got to tell the truth on some level and there was no level that truth was told on and I don't know what to say about that how do we know who to vote for anymore
2: well I want to just sort of um, first of all say that to me there's a distinction during a political campaign anyway between what you say about your opponent and then what you say about the electoral system itself. So, I mean, there's a big tradition of you know, saying bad things about your, your opponent and lying about your opponent, you are actually, people don't understand this, you are actually permitted to lie in campaign commercials. Uh, in other words, our system so values unfettered political speech that they will not regulate the truth of campaign commercials. The example I use when I'm teaching is a 2014 ad by Mitt Romney where he excerpted uh, some audio of Obama saying something when, in fact, if you have the full audio, he's saying the opposite thing. It's like one of those. Uh, but you can't do anything about that. <laughs> because, and I think we understand, or we have to accept anyway, that political speech and campaigns is going to be what it is and there's not much you can do about it. But I do part company with that idea when the candidate starts trying to discredit the system that he's running inside, which is what happened to an unprecedented degree in this cycle. Nobody's ever done this before. Um, Nobody's ever, while running for president, spent so much time suggesting that a voting outcome that didn't favor him was inherently illegitimate. And and to me, yeah, I think that has poisoned this campaign in, in a very special, regrettable, and hopefully non-repeatable way. All right. Let me take one more call. I'm going to take Yara and Glastonbury, uh, and then uh, I am going to take a break, and then I'm going to talk to others of you, and that's the plan. Uh, here's Yara. Hi. Welcome to the show.
5: Hi there, Colin. My name is Yara, and I'm from Glastonbury, and I've been working the election process as a um, worker from our town for the past six years. This year, we've had a lot of new workers. And one thing that I think is really complimentary is that I've had significant differences of opinion this year politically with a lot of the people that I've worked with. There's been a lot of decisiveness prior to the election. And one thing that I found that actually speaks to what you were talking about with norms I don't think norms have been followed. I think we have elevated ourselves above politics during this process to where the only thing our election officials and people that are working in elections in our town were focused in on was accuracy. We did not um, bow down to the political pressures of trying to get the ballots out on time and getting them accounted on time. We said we're not going to provide results quickly we are going to provide pre- results when they are done and when they are accurate and in some instances that meant that we counted things four times instead of two mm-hmm. um so i think if anything the norms have shown that people can rise to the occasion and do the right thing and actually provided me some reassurance that the future is a little bit more positive that than than I've seen based upon the de- decisiveness. I mean the de- divisiveness and the lack of um uh acceptance of differences than I have seen. So I'm sorry I, I'm not having a question but I, I do agree that um a lot of things are different right now as you guys have indicated. But from first hand knowledge I think that uh people are um stepping up and doing the right thing and trying to not focus on the, the lawyers pressuring them and that. Uh, politicians and the other citizens pressuring them. They're just trying to do what's necessary to get an accurate ballot.
2: Yeah. No, actually, Yana, thank you very much for your call. Great observation. By the way, nobody's required to ask a question. You can just say what you have to say. And I think we're seeing that all over the country. We are seeing and I'm hearing in, in interviews election officials, even if it doesn't favor their party, uh, their party's cause, there are uh, all of them that so far, not all of them, a lot of them are saying, look, the, what's important to me, what I've de- dedicated my life to very much in the manner that you Yara, are describing is getting elections right, getting counts right, having a good system. And if I see something that doesn't equal that, I am going to speak out, but I'm not going to speak out otherwise. And I am going to try to provide accurate accounts uh, and accurate results uh, and be uh, uh, as honest as I possibly can about it. I think we're seeing a lot of that. I don't think it's a universal reaction, uh, but um, it's close enough, <laughs> or, or good anyway. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here. Uh, this is Colin McEnroe. I'm just taking your phone calls right now, uh, and uh, we are going to be back. I should give out the number. It's triple eight seven two zero nine six seven seven. That's 720 720- WNPR. We're
1: going to have one million lawyers. How much can the four-nation stand? Oh, a suffering world cries for mercy as far as the eye can see. Lawyers around every bend in the road.
2: All right, so we're back. Um, first of all, thanks to Kat Pastor, as usual. She's there in the studio making all this stuff work. Whew, uh, we need that. Uh, and thanks to uh, both of my uh, main producers, uh, Betsy Kaplan, uh, the senior producer. She's uh, producing this episode. Uh, Jonathan McPants is doing a great job just sort of keeping me in the loop about news developments, which are sort of happening all the time. So if important things happen, I will, I will try to know. I will definitely know, and I will try to articulate those important things to you. I should say, we didn't really know What we were going to do today, we didn't really have anything on the calendar, you know. But we knew we had to do something, and so I said, "Well, let's get uh, we'll get Bill Curry, and uh, he'll talk for twenty five minutes. He won't let me say anything, and that'll be fine. And then I'll I'll talk to callers, and it's working out great. It's working out terrific. Uh, And so we're going to go back to you uh, on the calls. Um, So you know, uh, I'll try to get to Richard and Greenwich, but I'm going to go to Rebecca first because she's. Uh, bringing up an interesting thing not not that the other callers aren't and let me once again tell you what the phone number to call is if you want to be part of this grand spectacle 888-720-9677 that's 888-720-wnpr i haven't really given that number out it's not like second nature to me uh, yet uh hi rebecca from rocky hill Uh, you're on the air
0: thank you i'd like to know why there are no safeguards or repercussions when a president violates the rules to the extent of selling products from the White House and having campaign activities on White House property, there's no guardrails. And what a great lesson this is for everybody when we tell them that we need to follow the rules.
2: Right. I mean, so uh, I didn't get to hear all of it, but uh, if you're listening at one on WNPR, you might have heard preceding my show, Terry Gross's show, Fresh Air, the head Jack Goldsmith, a tremendous legal scholar on. And I was sort of running around doing stuff. And so I didn't get to hear everything he said, but I know that he was talking about emoluments. And, you know, they, I mean, they really did. In fact, uh, our own Richard Blumenthal, I think, was one of the key players to kind of go after that emoluments question. To what degree can you engage in self-dealing? To what degree can you operate your presidency so that not only does it cause money to flow, flow in, but you have the opportunity to operate the toggle switch, which increases the flow of money into your own coffers? Trump never really you know, went to anything resembling uh, a blind trust or anything like that. And he certainly has stayed in close contact with his uh, offspring who have been running all this stuff. Uh, And yeah, uh, money comes in. Money comes in. It's part of the way he is going to address those hundreds of millions of dollars in debt that we now have, know that he has, uh, and, and that he has personally guaranteed $300 million of. And yeah, I mean, I think it would be hard to your point, Rebecca, to explain to school children <laughs> if we have said anything to school children prior to this about what the rules are, the norms are, the ethics uh, of holding public office, why nothing could be done about this. And other than going back and reconsulting the court ruling in the case that Blumenthal and others tried to bring, and I just I l- literally do not remember how that case took shape and, and what happened to it, But it's a hard thing to to explain. I don't know. Did you want to say more?
0: Uh, Well, I'm a school teacher, and I have a hard time telling kids that they have to be better than the
2: president. (laughs) No, that's easy to tell the children. (laughs) It's a low bar for the children to... to, to, uh, uh, to uh, to climb so to clear. That's what I'm looking for. All right. So uh, we got uh, other other callers on the board and also lines open. It's one triple eight seven two zero nine six seven seven is the number. And let me also say I'm going to go to Richard next. Um, but let me also say that because I'm allowed to do it today, there are complex rules now about this. But uh, our show tomorrow, well, barring. Barring William Barr, um, barring some, you know, unfortunate turn of events or very fortunate turn of events, we're going to try to do our usual Friday show, which is a cultural roundtable called The Nose. Uh, America's greatest living film critic David Edelstein is joining us, as is uh, humanities scholar Rebecca Castellani. We've all been watching this terrific Netflix series, Queen's Gambit. Uh, We'll talk about that and other things as well. Uh, and I hope you tune in. But, you know, it's also possible that we just won't be able to do that because other urgent things will be happening. All right, let's go to – oh, Richard's been holding, like, forever. I don't know if he's still there. Richard, are you there on the air? Yes. Hi, Richard. I'm there. Are you here? Yes, I'm here.
3: Good. Well, with all due respect to your esteemed guest, who I know has many years of experience, I really took umbrage about him accusing uh, Biden of not presenting his case. If anything, he, there is a stark contrast between the two candidates, and I think Biden has drawn a, the stark contrast. The thing that gets, galls me is putting together a coalition in the Democratic uh, Party. I can't tell you how many times I've seen a quote-unquote progressive interviewed, and people have asked him, are you going to vote for Biden? and the person hems and haws and says something to the effect of, well, he's not my first choice, but as if there's another choice, like he's going to sit out. Right. I would recommend that uh, they re- your guest reread What's the Matter with Kansas.
2: By Thomas Frank, that yes. Came I'm, out, I'm sure he years. has read it. Let me just say a couple of things about that, though. It's, a, it's an interesting point that you're making. I'm going to stick up for Bill Curry. Although, if I'm going to stick up for Bill Curry, I want to make another point, which is that, uh, remember years ago when we used to have big snowstorms instead of like sandworms or whatever our climate consists of now? So we used to have snowstorms. And so Curry calls me up, and he's got, he's got all the snow on his roof, right? And so I say, well, I have a roof rake. There's a thing called a roof rake, which you can use. to. So he takes my roof rake, and he brings it to his house, and he breaks it. And then he calls me up and he says, I broke your roof rake. And I said, okay. And that was like, as far as he was concerned, the end of it, you know, like I feel like I still could have a pretty good Supreme court case about this. Okay. So now that I've got that, I'm going to stick up for him on another basis even though he broke my roof rake and then didn't replace it. Um, and that is, I think the point that Bill was making there, Richard, was that the average person who's not a political junkie, who doesn't spend a lot of time thinking and uh, reading and absorbing all this stuff, should be able to give an accurate summation of what the candidate stands for. Like, everybody knew what Bernie Sanders stood for, you know? I mean, even a casual political observer would know that and and it's a gift that democrats often lose the more time that they serve because they're so used to couching uh, their positions uh, so carefully and they're overmanaged by consultants. And I think that's what Bill is talking about when he says that, and I think he's 100% right, even though he broke my roof rake. Um, all right, so uh, we're going to go Levi is Levi next. Okay, this may be the last call of the day. could be the last call of the day, Levi, so just kill it, all right? Just really kind of land the show uh, with a, just a beautiful uh, three-point landing.
4: Well, that's uh, way too much pressure for me, but I'll give it a <laughs>
2: yeah.
4: Um Generally, I'm a huge fan of political institutions in countries that have the British common law systems and things of that sort. But I think that there's a legitimate place for doing what Trump, Donald Trump did, criticizing the way the system is run, saying that there are fixes in there. I'm not OK with how he did it.
2: Right. I, I, agree. I agree. I agree with think you. That I agree that there was much to criticize, and I agree that drain drain the swamp was a a legitimate thing to say and probably an important thing to say. And I also agree that Donald Trump understood in 2016 how desperate people were for change and that Hillary Clinton did not and couldn't in any meaningful way, not connected to her actual gender, deliver change. Uh, And Trump could at least arguably do that. Now, the problem— as you suggest, Levi, uh, is that once things kind of got going, he didn't really deliver significant change except tax relief for the very wealthy and the withdrawal of the U.S. from essentially... Every international compact from the World Health Organization to the Paris Climate Accords to like the International House of Pancakes, we left all of them. And so one of the things that he was saying, the people were saying basically is we don't like foreigners and we we want to be America first and all. And he he did deliver that. But drain the swamp. No, no. We got swampier. We have a bigger, stinkier swamp than we've ever had. And instead of the swampiness being farmed out to surrogates, the actual president of the United States is presiding over the swamp like some kind of swamp king monster from the Black Lagoon. So, yeah, I agree that the kind of change that Donald Trump talked about uh, in the 2016 campaign, I mean, there were some of it that was toxic to begin with, but some of it, you know, if he meant it could have been palatable. But I just think we now know after four years how little of it he actually meant. He did almost nothing that he said he would do. Even his signature slogan, the wall is barely built at all. So, uh, not that I'm complaining, but I'm just saying he couldn't do anything he said he was going to do. Uh, but he doesn't seem to be paying that big a price other than losing his presidency, ideally in the next two days. All right. Thanks to everybody who called in and thanks to everybody who helped out. We didn't get preempted. That's good, right? Well, from our point of view, it is anyway. And we will be back tomorrow with something and or other. When I need it, I can count on you like four.